Hello, welcome back. Today's guest is Michael Miller. He is the first philosopher that we bring onto the podcast, and wow, was this episode so interesting. So Michael is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Philosophy. He got his PhD in History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh, and before he actually got into philosophy, he was a physics student and then made his transition. You'll learn all about um, how he got to where he is now and also all of the interesting things that he loves to think about in his research. So enjoy the episode. It was mind-bending. It's the language of the universe. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you to episode number 115, where today we have Dr. Michael Miller on the podcast here with us. So, Mike, um, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. So we've had, I mean, as the listeners know, we've had quite a lieu of guests on this podcast. We've had uh, physicists, we've had mathematicians, we've had YouTubers that are trying to be both, but we've never really had a philosopher. And as Parker told you before the podcast started, as we were just talking, um, we've had a lot of philosophy episodes on the podcast, but... I guess we've never really had a real philosopher before. So we're very excited to talk to you. And I'm very just curious on how one gets into a stream of philosophy. Because I feel like nowadays, when we relate to modern science, we think of physics or chemistry or biology or biotech or anything like that. But 500 years ago, all of modern science was philosophers. They were all philosophers. So more than just the curiosity of how you came into this field, a question that I ask most of our guests on the show is, well, how did you get into philosophy? Was it something in high school, university? What motivated you into the doctor that you are today? Yeah, so I um, actually was, uh, when I entered university, I was most interested in physics um, and did a university degree in physics. And my interest in, I was interested in philosophy when I was even in high school already. But at that stage, um, I had no. I don't. I don't think I really knew what that meant yet. Um, I think, um, like, there's lots. Everybody in high school studies basic science courses, mm -hmm. mathematics courses. Um, it, at least in my um, high school, there were no philosophy courses. That was something that you only started once you arrived in university. So I was kind of curious about philosophy when I got to university, but I didn't have a clear understanding of what that meant as a kind of field of study um <clears throat> so when i arrived at university i was really kind of mo most motivated to do modern physics and, and got really interested in quantum mechanics in particular and that was really currently remains one of my core interests um but yeah over the course of uh, my studies at university i kind of realized that the sorts of questions within physics that I was most interested in were to do with kind of um, the basic conceptual foundations of the discipline in the sense that I was interested in like 
okay, I've got this algorithm up and running that allows me to do like make predictions that we can test in the lab. And um, there's one way of doing physics where that's kind of like where one leaves off. But um, I was interested in what came next, which was like, okay, I've got this algorithm. Uh, what does that mean? What does that tell me about um, what reality is like? And um, yeah, over the years, I started to learn that that was the sort of question that philosophers really are interested in. Um, and so, I, yeah, it took me a while to make my way to um, philosophy as a formal academic discipline. I did and eventually do kind of a double uh, major, including a um, second undergraduate major in philosophy. Um, but when I left university, I went and worked in a, um, a large um, particle physics experiment at the LHC um, on the ATLAS experiment. Um, and then during that, the year that I was there, um, I kind of had been doing, I did a lot of reading on my own and kind of started to sort out more in more detail what I wanted to do. And so then I when it did a master's degree in the foundations of physics um, at Columbia University. And um, during my time at Columbia uh, with my supervisor there, David Albert, um, it became clear to me that the class of questions that I really wanted to spend my um, time focusing on were questions in philosophy of physics. Um, and so then I did uh, yeah, a PhD in um uh, philosophy, uh, history and philosophy of science at the University of Pittsburgh. And um, yeah, when I finished that, I came uh, here to the University of Toronto, where I'm a uh, philosopher of science in the philosophy department. So you mentioned that you were interested in quantum mechanics in your undergrad. It's also something that I was really interested in, um, even though, you know, while doing astrophysics, quantum mechanics is kind of something that gets put on the back burner versus things like nonlinear dynamics and macroscopic physics. Um, but while studying quantum mechanics, I noticed that a lot of the questions that would arise naturally have to do with the nature of reality and kind of how things operate behind the eyes of the observer, kind of the, the things that you are able to detect so are these the kind of concepts that you attack in in your work right now? Um yeah, so I I mean my so my initial interest in the conceptual foundations of physics stemmed out of um the kinds of questions that you're describing um in internal to kind of like the kinds of basic philosophical issues that would arise in a standard course in non-relativistic quantum mechanics. And I continue to um, have d deep interest in those issues and I have various projects that I'm working on that are concerned with the conceptual foundations of uh, quantum mechanics. My, my interest in the conceptual foundations of physics have kind of grown outside the bounds of that, that scope. Um, and so uh, a lot of my work has subsequently been concerned with um, quantum field theory, which, I mean, there's a sense in which that's still just quantum mechanics. Um, uh, that still lives, that's a theory that lives comfortably within the framework of quantum mechanics. Uh, it's just quantum mechanics done in a, a, a space-time that exhibits the relativistic invariances um, uh, that we learn from special relativity. But when you do quantum mechanics in that um, kind of new space-time uh, framework, 
um, you get new kinds of problems, and uh, there's a long history of difficulties in 20th century physics of trying to get to grips with conceptually not just the difficulties of non-relativistic quantum mechanics, which has its own kind of issues. But then once you try to do quantum mechanics in Minkowski space-time, then you, um, uh, you get a whole host of new conceptual problems, and there the problems are, in a sense, even more basic than the sorts of uh, problems that one confronts in the context of quantum mechanics. The questions are like, is this even a consistent theory? Do we have a well-defined mathematical algorithm for calculating anything at all? Um, and so I'm, I've retained all of my interests in the, those sorts of philosophical issues in the foundations of quantum mechanics, but now I've also got other um, interests and projects concerned with the mathematical and conceptual foundations of quantum field theory, which are, I think, importantly different from just the kinds of things that one worries about in quantum mechanics. So when you have a conceptual problem, I'm just curious on like how, like what, um, again, this might be just my lack of knowledge of what a philosopher really does, but I guess that's really my question. What does a philosopher do? When you have this conceptual problem, you've laid it out, you're like, okay, as you mentioned, is this theory consistent or whatnot? I'm very curious actually to know, and maybe we can talk about it later, like what specific examples of conceptual problems there are with quantum field theory and quantum mechanics. But in particular, what do you do once you have this problem let out? Because if I'm not mistaken, or maybe again, correct my understanding if I'm wrong, you're not you're not like taking it from a science. Okay, again, just, just okay, because I guess I don't actually know what I'm, what I'm talking about. So maybe I can just ask you, what do you do once you have the problem laid out? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a it's, a, it's a good question. And it's probably the kind of thing where we'll need to start at a kind of general level. And I could say some sort of abstract stuff. And then um, maybe we can talk about some specific okay. cases and I can tell you the sort like some some more details about the actual sorts of discussions that go on in uh, philosophy of physics sure. but um, the there's a aphorism I don't know I'm, or I'm blanking on who to attribute it to and I'm sorry about that but I'm sure one can consult the internet um, but the but the aphorism says something like um, uh, philosophy is what you do when you don't know what the question is. Um, and uh, I think that is a situation that we find ourselves in um, uh, in, sci in science much more often than uh, one realizes. And so, um, yeah, so those are the sorts of situations where... Um, uh, the, you, you can kind of see that there's some sort of internal conceptual tension inside of the system of reasoning that you've got. And uh, I think of a, a, a given scientific theory, say, as like a particular system of reasoning about a particular class of um, physical systems. Um, and lots of, like, we, we like to celebrate the success cases. Um, and there obviously are, are, are many of those. Um, but I'm, I'm, I've, I've always been, what I was describing earlier is I've always been interested in those cases where there's actually a kind of conceptual tension where the kind of, um, physical story that one gets in terms of the mathematical resources of the theory, uh, don't give a, uh, unambiguous or fully precise or, um, uh, conceptually, uh, coherent or even consistent, uh, 
uh, story about how the collection of physical systems described by the theory actually are. And then um, th that's where I think there's room for philosophy. And I mean, the thing, an important thing to say here is I, I don't think that that activity um, is the sort of thing that's somehow uniquely suited for philosophers. And um, in many instances in the history of science and the history of physics in particular, um, you can find examples of physicists wrangling with just these same sorts of questions. And it was really only kind of an accident of history throughout in the relatively early 20th century that there was a period where physicists thinking about those questions kind of came apart from philosophers thinking about those sorts of conceptual questions at the foundations of their theories. Um, and uh, in in recent years, in the last, say, 50 years or so, I'd say the trend is that the communities are coming back together in a large, uh, to a large extent. So um, I find myself in conversation with people um, doing philosophy of physics, obviously, but also with people working directly inside um, physics proper. A lot of what I read is physics proper. Um, so... Yeah, so I look for those places where there's conceptual tension inside the framing of uh, the theory and then try to say something productive about what what sort of assumption operating in the background might be leading to that um, tension and how you might relax that assumption or adjust that assumption in a way that makes things look more clear. So what is it, what was the event that caused philosophers and physicists to kind of take their own path in the 20th century? Uh, it's a good question. I don't know if it was an individual event, but I think it was a, a series of reactions to what I'm referring to in particular is a series of reactions to difficulties in the foundations of quantum mechanics. Um, and from relatively early in the development of that theory, it became clear that, um, okay, the old quantum theory uh, was kind of groping towards a well-formulated theory, but by the time we have something roughly resembling the modern version of quantum mechanics in the late 1920s, um, it became clear that it was going to be hard to recover anything like a classical image of the world from this theory. Like it was not just a revision to the way that we calculated things or something like that. There was like deep conceptual um, issues residing there. One, the, the place where the tension really, I think, became uh, manifest and where the kind of philosophers or the, the kind of the, the philosophy got put to the side was to do with the issue of the role of observers in quantum mechanics and the role that um, uh, measurement type interactions play inside of the theory. And um, I think, I mean, I have my historical suspicions about what happened there, but my sense is that people realize, oh, this is really a difficult conceptual problem. And it was going to be hard to say, given the... Um, uh, uh, situation at the time, it's going to be hard to <laughs> resolve that issue. And in many ways, I think it's fair to say we still haven't fully resolved that issue. I think um, there's remain deep um, disagreements about what to say about 
the status of observers and measurement type interactions in um, quantum theory. The And so the physicists just pressed on, as one uh, might naturally expect, and just kept doing physics. And of course, there's loads of um, productive uh, physics one can do with quantum mechanics without worrying about that issue. And um, quantum mechanics is rightly celebrated as one of the most empirically successful theories that we've ever developed. Um, but it was really, you know, starting in the late 60s and early 70s that a collection, a small collection of physicists who were really kind of um, in difficult uh, academic situations because of their interest in these foundational questions about what the predictive algorithm of quantum mechanics was saying, um, started to turn attention to this issue. And the philosophers re- were right out uh, right right on their tails um, in terms of uh, having a desire to face up to this question of the role of um, uh, measurement in, inside of quantum theory and and so yeah there's a lot I mean there's lots of old stories about um, the kinds of pressure that were put on people who wanted to work on these issues inside of physics I mean it was regarded as not a good career decision to put it kind of mildly. Uh, to try to face up to these questions. Um, but now, of course, the situation's changed very drastically. These are um, these questions are debated uh, uh, quite, quite widely, not just amongst philosophers of physics, but amongst physicists themselves. And there's a whole community of people doing uh, quantum foundations, and these kinds of questions are very much um, uh, central to their project as well. Yeah, now, these kind of conversations that are happening in the space are you know they're being the ideas are being spoken about by you know people who know a lot about physics and people who love kind of attacking as you said these points of tension within um within the the theories um but one thing that i find really interesting is that now like undergrads like rayhan and i once we get to our final year, we have to take as a requirement a history of uh, science, history and philosophy of science course. And so we do get kind of an, uh, a high level introduction to these kinds of ideas. And I personally, I have found that it has impacted the way that I kind of go about doing physics on a day to day basis, right? It's, it's not just about running formulas and crunching numbers, but I do tend to think more about kind of the the fundamental underlying um, ideas behind just looking at the formula. Yeah, I I, I do think that that's something that um, is really important. I had that experience. I I recall as an undergraduate student, yeah, I was, you know, just getting my feet under me, learning how to do calculations, and in a in a pretty general like metaphysics and epistemology class in um, the philosophy department, I I read um, uh, Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is where this kind of um, important role of um, the historical dimension of the um, uh, progress of science first 
register for me. It wasn't something that it's, I mean, it's not the kind of thing you learn about in your physics classes typically, or if you do, you get a tiny little, um, a bit of the history here and there, but you don't get a sense of the, um, the, the broader scope of the historical development Mm. and, and, and what that means for, um, uh, what that means for how you should think about the status of what you're actually up to when you're learning to um, calculate things with those equations. And so that definitely was I've, something I experienced as well as like a important, um, an important shift in my perspective. Um, and then the philosophical kind of dimension too is something that that, that happened later f- for me in the sense that I only realized that there was such a thing as the philosophy of physics relatively late in my undergraduate studies. But I think I'd been, I'd been sort of worried about those questions all along and then I sort of just realized that they were out there to be pursued in a more kind of formalized um, manner to to actually do something like philosophy of physics i would imagine that you would need quite a solid physics background right because you mentioned that um when you are challenging these uh, these these conceptual tensions uh in quantum field theory or quantum mechanics for example i'm assuming in writing a paper or in writing your conclusion you need quite a lot of understanding of the material to do so correct um I'd say the philosophy of physics community is pretty diverse in the sense that there's people coming at the questions from lots of different backgrounds. The same is true of philosophy of science more generally. There's there's not just philosophy of physics, there's philosophy of biology, philosophy of cognitive science, philosophy of chemistry, and so on. Um, and they, they do kind of the analogy. The, um, philosophy of those other particular sciences do the sort of analogous thing where they're they're interested in the kind of conceptual um, tensions within the the science itself and what the success of the science tells us about the domain that the science gives us a description of. Um, but yeah, amongst philosophers of physics, often people have a background in physics um, or, and, or they've made the transition to philosophy from physics. It's a quite, I mean, though it strikes some people as odd, like it's quite common to have students who have interests in both philosophy and physics. Um, we have a undergraduate, a, a small but um, a very good undergraduate specialist program at the university in the um, uh, physics and philosophy together Um uh, and so, but yeah, not everyone has that experience. Um, uh, lots of people, there are people who come to um, the philosophy of physics uh, from a more mathematical background, but without the physics. Um, and they kind of get interested in uh, questions where, okay, I mean, eventually one has to get to grips with what's going on inside of the theories, but um, some of the people come from a more pure mathematics background, I would say. Um, and then from the other direction, there's people who come from much more squarely within philosophy, um, and they just get interested in the kinds of questions that are at issue um, in the in physics in particular in philosophy of physics in particular um, often those are people who are interested in metaphysics um, you know questions about very general questions about the nature of reality and you can under, you can kind of see how if you're interested in the nature of physical reality it's, it might be it's kind of hard to ask those sorts of 
questions, or at least certain of those questions, without having some purchase on what physics has delivered to us as our best story about what microphysical reality is like. Um, and so, yeah, again, there it's important to develop some facility with the relevant physical theories, but yeah, the community is pretty diverse in the sense that there's people coming from math backgrounds, physics backgrounds, more metaphysics backgrounds. Um, yeah. So knowing that they're coming from all of these different places and not particularly from physics, I guess my question is, and this is quite a general question too for like philosophers, but like, who are you contributing towards? Are you contributing towards the scientists that are doing those experiments, that are finding those uh, those um, those those tensions, or are you contributing towards the general public who doesn't know anything about this, and you're simply trying to translate that information into questions that the general public might have in lieu of that experiment, or are you just doing it for philosophers amongst yourselves? Yeah, my guess is like if you consulted different philosophers of physics, you'd get different answers to this question, um, but. I guess, I mean, again, there's this, uh, Feynman once said that the philosophy of science is, is useful to uh, physicists as ornithology is to birds. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there, there, there's a certain understanding of what goes on in philosophy of physics, a, a certain understanding of what the project of physics is supposed to be, according to which that's probably true. Um, the philosophers aren't always... Um, uh, constructing things in, in or per pursuing questions in a way where it's designed to be like, okay, you're trying to calculate some fourth order correction to what's an observable of interest. Like, let me show you how to think about what, what, why that matters. Um, so yeah, what I usually tell students is that there certainly are ways of approaching physics where the sorts of conceptual issues that I happen to be interested in just aren't going to make much of a difference um, if you're just grinding out a fourth order calculation to improve our estimate of something uh, I, I probably like you're probably not going to be terribly interested in the sorts of issues that I'm concerned with um, and there's lots of productive science that you can do in that mode and I wouldn't ever <laughs> want to be understood as telling people that that's somehow not interesting or not important or anything like that. Um, but I guess I, so the kind of work, I, the way I regard the kind of work that I do and who it's for is as directed to anyone who's interested in those sorts of conceptual issues at the foundations of the theories. And sometimes that's other philosophers, sometimes that's foundationally oriented physicists, Sometimes that's members of the general public, as you said, um, and so I don't, I don't, I don't start from the. Um, I guess I don't when I'm thinking of a something to work on. I don't start from the question like who's going to be, who's going to find this interesting. Um, I I start just with is there is there a conceptual issue here that requires more careful scrutiny. If so, then that's something where I'm going to get interested and try to pursue it. Um, and yeah, some of the stuff I do is um, more interesting to philosophers of physics. Some of it seems to get a better reception when I talk about it in front of physicists. Um, some of it 
has more um, appeal to people coming more directly from metaphysics. And um, yeah, I don't, I, I think we're, we've been, we're kind of trained, whether directly or indirectly to kind of from the outset identify, well, this belongs in this kind of um, venue or uh, the, like this will be received by this sort of audience. And um, I think that's a, that's a trend to sort of be resisted. That sort of siloing of um, this, this kind of strand of inquiry belongs here. Um, that strand of inquiry belongs there. I think uh, we miss out on a lot of opportunities for productive dialogue between people coming at similar questions, but from different sets of methodologies. If we, if we really, from the outset, kind of restrict uh, who we take the work to be for, I think that's often, um, if you're doing important, interesting work, that's often not the kind of thing that you're you you should be able to determine from the outset. And that's something that kind of uh, can turn out to be surprising in the end. So being at the forefront of these discussions, do you ever have this impending feeling of a scientific revolution that, that is about to happen, right? You know, constantly thinking about these tensions, does it ever feel like something is going to crack and then, you know, discoveries will just start pouring? I hope so. I mean, I think... Um, just temporally, I like my studies happened um, in a period where the sorts of kind of exciting new developments in the future were supposed to be kind of to do not with the not just the final confirmation of the standard model of particle physics, but then um, you know we the the great hope. Um, was that we we're going to find new physics at the LHC and um, that it was going to point us into the whatever the direction that physics was going to, well, fundamental particle physics, uh, let's say, at least was going to proceed um, for the next uh, generation of physicists. And as you probably know, that's not the that's not the way the story panned out. We kind of, uh, at least up to now, mostly what has been discovered is just the kind of the confirmation of the final piece of the standard model and the discovery of the Higgs and the particular kind of Higgs scenario that we, we found. Um, and then not much else, um, not, not much uh, new physics that changed the, sh at least not much that changed the shape of, you know, how we um, uh, think about fundamental particle physics. And so, yeah, I mean, I've, I mean, I since that time I was working on particle physics, have gone on to ask different sorts of questions. But um, yeah, I think that's always whatever what people are um, hoping for is that we're going to find some clue to um, what's what's um, where the next developments are going to be. And yeah, it, I mean, that that looks a little bit different in the context of philosophy of physics as opposed to um, as opposed to, you know, the first order project of doing fundamental particle physics or, or high energy physics more um, uh, generally. Um, but yeah, I think that that desire to see where things are headed is always still there. And um, that's part of what's exciting about um uh, about engaging in this kind of work mm -hmm. in in astrophysics 
the big thing is dark matter. Is that something that you've thought about? Uh, I, yeah, not in any, um, uh, not in any detailed sense, but I mean, that's one of these cases where it's pretty clear that we don't know what the story is yet. There, there that, I mean, dark, dark matter is, and dark energy are, um, well, I mean, they're important conceptual differences, but in both cases, it seems like, uh, there's a significant chance that both of those concepts are just sort of placeholder concepts to be filled in by some more um, uh, detailed scientific story. In the case of dark matter, that seems pretty clear. Like we just don't, like we use that term to refer to something, but we don't really know what that thing that we're referring to is supposed to yeah. be, how it's structured, what parts of other physics it couples to and so on. Dark energy, there's scenarios where there's not much more of a story to tell about it, but it's okay. There's obviously big debates about that sort of question uh whether that's whether that's true or not um so i think those are yeah those are those are examples where those are examples of the sort of scenario i mentioned earlier where um sometimes in the project of doing science you can just kind of grind away and uh work out the sort of deductive consequences of what's come before but then sometimes in the course of that theorizing you encounter conceptual issues and i think dark matter is a great example where um, people have realized there's something missing there's a piece missing here and um and if you look at the kinds of thinking that people have to do to face up to those sorts of um questions like they're 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 the kind of thing that strike me as not too far away from uh the sort of conceptual uh rethinking of the framework that um uh that i'm that i'm fundamentally interested in yeah. it's actually quite interesting that um the very last episode that we had on we actually had um, a professor by the name of the dr rajendra gupta from the university of ottawa and funnily enough, you're talking about, you know, like breaking, kind of like breaking the way that you think about things. And he actually um, saw the new James Webb Space Telescope data. And it turns out that a lot of our current models don't actually coincide with what we see from early galaxies from the James Webb. And that could exactly be, as you were talking about, with the limited data that we have available, we're making these theories. And then he basically took kind of like his own theory and his own model that he had made up um, last year. And he actually got quite a lot a bit more uh, data matching up with the James Webb Space Telescope than really any other theory. And his theory actually does away completely with dark energy. And that, I think, is the perfect example of someone th like thinking of another way to explain the same thing. Like what kind of, I mean, well, what do you think about this situation and what kind of questions do you think you would first have for someone, let's say, who gave you such a paper? Yeah, so, I mean, the, those are, I think this is one kind of way to sort of draw the distinction between the philosopher's way of coming at questions like this and the physicist's way of coming at it. So I'm not, like when I approach one of these conceptual problems, though I don't think about the astrophysics examples as much as I do about the quantum mechanics and quantum field theory ones. Um, but yeah, the, the physicists naturally, like if they get some data which don't agree with the existing kind of formalism, 
um, the natural thing is to either explain what's going on with the data that make it depart from the formalism, or uh, alternatively, you got to try to build a model that somehow um, does deliver you an explanation of the, why the data looks like that and not the way you expected it to on the basis of the previous model. So physics, um, philosophers aren't usually in, engaged in that activity of building new models that explain the new data. That's more the kind of physics approach to the question. But there's certain kind of um, connections between what people are up to when they're doing that and the sort of things that philosophers are interested in, in the, in the sense that um, if you're building a new model like that, part of what you're doing, it sounds like in this case that you mentioned at least, is revising the ontology. What I mean by that is you're you're saying different things than we previously said about what there is in the world. So if you previously thought that there was um, uh, some kind of dark energy, I mean, I could get specific about what the particular model says. Um, uh, but if you previously thought there was a dark energy that was causing the um, accelerated expansion of the universe, and then we now have a new model where you don't have that, that's a marked difference in what your theory is saying about what there is in the world. And that's, I mean, that's a that's a classic kind of um, ontological prescription. That's a that's that's what philosophers are worried about. Like, what uh, what is there in the world? Um, and so, yeah, th those are the, the that's one way to start to see how these projects aren't really that dissimilar. They really are concerned with similar sorts of um, issues. Um, they just come at the issues from slightly, with, with different methods and uh, with different sorts of explanatory targets in mind, I think. I want to get more into kind of your work within quantum field theory. Can you kind of give us a you know, explain it like I'm five <laughs> kind of explanation of what are kind of the, the tensions that exist and the, the tensions that you're examining. Yeah, so um, quantum field theory is a theory that I've learned to love. Um, it's been my kind of greatest intellectual joy in life is to, to learn about this theory and try to understand it. But um, it's taken me uh, a long time to feel like I have a basic grasp of um the, the theory and um, I, th I find that that's not that uncommon even amongst physicists who work with the theory and let me try to say that probably sounds a bit odd uh, let me let me try to say a bit about why that is true so um, so quantum field theory is just a it's a framework for building mod physical models um, and it incorporates the basic principles of quantum mechanics on the one hand um, and special relativity on the other. Well, there's now quantum field theory in more general space-time scenarios, but let's um, restrict attention to just uh, Minkowski space. Um, and so the sorts of systems we want to describe um, are systems of quantum fields. So um, uh, the initial quantum field theory, the one that the framework of quantum field theory eventually was a generalization of was uh, quantum electrodynamics, which uh, initially was just 
designed to describe the interaction of the electron field with the photon field. It was supposed to describe electro, the quantum version of electromagnetism in a relativistic space-time. And um, the efforts towards that theory begin in the late 1920s again. Um, and in the initial efforts towards a theory like that, um, it was realized pretty early on, uh, really in the first few years of working with the theory, that um, if you could be minding your business going along calculating perturbative corrections to um, the value of some observable, and because of the behavior of the um, short distance structure of the theory, uh, or the very high energy, equivalently the very high energy regime in the theory, um, you got infinity for quantities that were supposed to not just be finite, but in fact were supposed to be probabilities. So we're supposed to be between zero and one. And okay, so you see immediately that there's some kind of problem going on in the background. Um, and the history of quantum field theory, or one way to tell that history, is in fact the history of efforts to understand what in the world is going on with a physical theory where um, all you've done is tried to describe the interaction of two fields with one another, not terribly differently from the way we proceed in classical um, relativistic electromagnetism. Um, the main difference just being that we introduce quantization rules so that we have a quantum mechanical theory of those fields. Um, and what could be going on in such a theory if for even basic physical observables at second order of perturbation theory we get infinity rather than some finite correction to the um, uh, classical value of the term in question. Um, so those those divergences or those infinities are called the ultraviolet divergences. Um, it turns out that, um, and th then there's a story about uh, renormalization, which I'm happy to tell, which provides tools for eventually dealing with those um, uh, those infinities. But um, I think it's those those are the those are the infinities that most of the conceptual worrying in quantum field theory have been about. I think um, it's not obvious that, well, it turns out that those are not the only infinities. And in fact, um, uh, on the one hand, there's more ultraviolet type infinities than just the ones I mentioned. And the distinction between the different classes of ultraviolet infinities has not always been made fully explicit in conceptual discussions of renormalization theory. And so that's one thing I'm uh, quite, have been quite interested in. Um, but separately from ultraviolet issues, there's also um, infinities in quantum field theory. Again, realize early, relatively early on in the development of the theory, uh, coming from the long distance behavior of the theory or the so-called infrared regime. Um, and uh, the infrared divergences, I think, are provide equally uh, conceptually challenging um, uh, circumstances for us to try to understand what the theory is actually saying in a way that um, fit the, the physics literature has been, uh, the, the physics literature has treated that question as less conceptually fraught than I think it actually is in general, because there's a relatively straightforward cancellation mechanism that renders a certain class of observables infrared finite. Um, 
And then lastly, a question which is um, uh, was only, I mean, it was discussed for a brief period in mainstream physics, but then kind of got left to the side, which is uh, I'm calculating uh, order by order in a perturbative expansion. So uh, if you've seen Feynman diagram calculations in quantum field theory, those are, um, those are just kind of a code for how to write down the integral corresponding to um, each term in that expansion. And um, the, the, the third question that I'm referring to is the question of if I just not if I truncate that series at a couple orders and get an approximation to the observable, but what if I keep going? The theory says that there's an infinite collection of contributions to any given observable that we treat perturbatively. Um, and the question that uh, one of the questions I've been very interested in, which was discussed already by Dyson in the uh, in the early fifties, was does that series converge? You know, it's a it's an infinite series, the kind that students learn to sum uh, in in high school, but not all not all not all sums of finite values, assuming you can make the uh, order by order infinities from the ultraviolet and the infrared um, finite. Um, that's not the, um, uh, that's not the, it's, you're not done. You've got to, you've got to determine whether or not the whole series converges. And already in, uh, the early fifties, Dyson gives us a pretty compelling physical argument that the answer is no for any realistic, um, uh, perturbative expansion arising out of a quantum field theoretic calculation. You should expect it to be divergent. Um, and so, then there's a real puzzle in front of you, which is, well, then why did the early orders in that expansion, um, once I've rendered the term, them term by term finite by renormalization, why, why, do the, why does the first few terms give me a good approximation to the observable if in the end, if I know once I calculate everything, I'm going to get infinity back again? Um, and so those are three instances of conceptual problems in the foundations of um, quantum field theory, all of which I've been um, very interested in and actively working on. They're certainly not the, the only ones. There's lots of problems to do with, for example, the gauge structure of quantum field theory, which uh, many philosophers of physics have also been working on. And um, so I, 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 I'm afraid I failed at the explain like kind of five uh, 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 instruction, but hopefully that gives some sense of um, the sorts of problems that we've been we've been thinking about. Right. So you're you're dealing with kind of resolving these infinities that pop up, and you know even though as you were as you were explaining, you have a perturbative system, the few lower order corrections they actually give you a right answer, but then if you keep going, it just goes to infinity. So you have like a a well-defined idea of the problem at hand. So now the next step to kind of attacking that problem philosophically, what would that look like? Yeah, I mean, so uh, the story, I think I think for each of these distinct classes of infinities, it turns out that you need to say something pretty different about each of them. It's oh, not wow. that we got... Th we. Um, if, if you get down into the nitty gritty details, it seems like what's going on with the um, ultraviolet structure of the theory involves an important conceptual kind of um, uh, approach to 
to adjusting how you think about the uh, algorithm of the theory. Um, but that's what that's different from what you want to say about the infrared, and it's yet different from what you say about the large order divergences. So, um, yeah, I'm happy to elaborate on any one of them in particular. But I just want to I just want to flag that once you start looking at, I mean, the, the the common complaint about quantum field theory, they think that makes it a difficult theory to kind of conceptually wrap your head around. Is you've got all of these infinities. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it, that you need detailed conceptual analysis of each of those pieces of what's going on in order to be able to tell anything like a consistent, um, story about, um, the algorithm that you're using to predict observables and then to try to hope to be able to tell some sort of realistic story about what could be going on in the background, what could be going on. Uh, in the world that accounts for the fact that this algorithm is actually successful for predicting the results of experiments. And so, I mean, the in the case of the large order divergences, um, there's a, so those are the divergences coming from the fact that even once I render the perturbative expansion order by order finite, the whole infinite series of terms still diverges. I, I mean, Quite early in the very paper where Dyson conjectures, well, he gives an argument. He he first gives an argument for the claim that this has to the ser the series in quantum electrodynamics is an expansion. The um, uh, the coupling has to diverge. Um, the conjecture he makes immediately already in that paper is that the explanation for that fact is that the expansion in question is an asymptotic expansion. And so asymptotic expansions have this behavior where um, they, even though they eventually diverge, the early orders of the expansion um, uh, give a good estimate of the value of the uh, function that they're approximating, um, even though eventually they don't sum uniquely to the exact value of the function. Um, and so that's kind of the, I, th I take it that's the was the received wisdom in the physics literature um, about what what could be going on and why perturbation theory was giving you good information about some background non-perturbative um, structure that we didn't have access to and we still in the case of quantum electrodynamics do not have access to. Um, but I think like what's what's left over as a philosophical problem is um, to say something about what that means for the way that we associate physical content with the mathematics of the theory. So if you kind of treat the um, that the relationship between the mathematical structures and the theory and um, the, the then what you take that mathematics to be about physically at face value, it's not obvious why one is justified in neglecting all of the stuff that goes uh, that lives beyond wherever you decided to truncate the um, the series. If, for example, the series did converge eventually, um, you could justify the truncation at some early stage as saying, look, those subsequent terms, while they are physically relevant, um, uh, d uh, like don't matter for me to execute this calculation to the level of 
accuracy that matters for testing, uh, for, for comparing to the experiment, um, given the level of precision of the experiment. But when they don't converge, um, you can't tell that sort of story. You can't tell the story where they really are physically relevant. It's just that we've not included them because we've, uh, we're, we're only concerned with a certain level of precision. You need a story that can tell you something about why physically what lives in the perturbative expansion is somehow not relevant um, and not in the sense that it's not relevant for the level of precision you need from the theory, but it's actually not physically relevant. It somehow goes beyond what um, is physically uh, there in the problem. And so one, one sort of philosophical approach to this question is to try to say something about what, what is it about those large orders of perturbation theory that makes them not physically relevant uh, for, um, uh, for characterizing the kinds of physical systems that the theory is about? So then, is that, is that a question that there is an answer to? Like, is there a point that you can say, well, this is where uh, the information is relevant and past that we can just throw it away? I mean, so I, I've... I've tried to tell a story about this. Um, I've, so this is something that I've worked on. And um, I, I mean, there's a, so there's a mathematical way you can tell the story at, purely at the level of mathematics. And this is the stand, for people who study asympt asymptotic expansions in the, it's just as a branch of uh, mathematics as, a, as an approach to kind of thinking about uh, differential equations and partial differential equations. Um, the standard story is you should expect the expansion to stop giving you um, good information about the physical um, system uh, when the series arrives at the term which is least in magnitude um, uh, because the asymptotic expansions often have the behavior that you get a term that's um, relatively large, a smaller term, a smaller term, a smaller term. You can imagine, so it looks like the beginning of a convergent series where the terms are getting smaller sufficiently quickly in order to be summable to a finite value. But then in the case of asymptotic expansions, what happens is that turns around at some point in the expansion. So at some order of perturbation theory, um, the terms start getting bigger once again. Um, that's what we expect to happen in the case of quantum electrodynamics, for example. Um, but we don't expect it to happen until pretty deep into the perturbative expansion for that theory. So estimates, uh, I mean, it should be at, at least at 100 orders of perturbation theory. But at uh, the current best uh, 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 the current best theoretical determination of the perturbative uh expansion only goes to five orders uh, or tenth depending on what you count in orders of um so uh you know it's good and and it takes really herculean efforts to calculate that um tenth order uh correction um in perturbation theory it requires like very substantial numerical um analysis and um, the cl the the classes because the Feynman di diagrams corresponding to contributions at first and second order 
give you integrals which are relatively straightforward to analyze. Sometimes even you can do them uh, analytically, and that's the kind of thing you learn to do in a first course in quantum field theory. But if you follow the Feynman rules for third and eventually fourth and uh, subsequent orders, the structure of the integrals gets way more complicated, and eventually it become they become you know analytically intractable, and you need some kind of uh, numerical integration um, to kick in. But in addition to the integrals becoming worse, um, the number of graphs contributing at a given order of perturbation theory grows um, something like as a factorial in the order of the expansion, and so. At relatively low orders, you already have a huge number of um, uh, you already have a huge number of graphs um, that you need to treat in order to calculate the correction, and so there's a prag there's a kind of pragmatic mathematical story to tell about where do you throw your hands up, which is just we we've tried you know people have um, spent uh, an enormous amount of effort calculating these precision corrections to the early, relatively early orders of perturbation theory, and we expect perturbation theory to continue to give us um, uh, good information about the systems uh, for, uh, you know, as I said, a, a hundred orders of perturbation theory. And so there's a, this pragmatic thing we can say, which is just like, look, it's not going to matter anywhere in what I'm, what actually matters for comparing to experiments. So I can just kind of leave off there. But that's that's kind of the, that's a good example of the kind of story where somebody who's mostly concerned with comparing theory to experiment and then saying yeah checks out is going to be more or less satisfied. Um, but if you're interested in conceptually what's going on in the background, like what actually accounts for the success of these methods, um, there's an additional question to ask, which is yeah like what what if we could what if we could do what if we could keep going what if we could um, calculate the subsequent orders of perturbation theory to the point where perturbation theory stopped giving us good information. Um, and so I think the answer um, uh, the answer to the question comes from thinking about um, a more principled kind of understanding of the bigger theoretical or the conceptual question in the background comes from thinking about um, what that what we even take the observable uh, being approximated to mean. Um, and so uh, the question turns out to be one about whether there even are systems, physical systems, that are described uh, or that would require for exhausting the matters of physical fact about them that level of precision. And in the case of, say, um, the, the famous... Um, Kind of example is the anomalous electron magnetic moment. That's where this kind of that's if you've seen the claim that quantum field theory is the most or quantum electrodynamics is one of the most uh, precisely um, tested and successful physical theories. This is the kind of comparison between theory and experiment that people have in mind. Sorry, could you maybe explain um, the experiment? I'm not sure if me or other viewers are aware of said experiment. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. So, so the observable. So, if you put a um, uh, an electron in a magnetic field, it's got a magnetic moment, just like um, other charged um, objects. And what one of the um, crucial tests that showed people that you needed um, 
that you needed a quantum field theoretic description of um, quantum electrodynamics in particular was that there was an important kind of discrepancy from the kind of particulate version of the theory that you inherit more directly from a classical relativistic electrodynamics mm. presentation uh, or characterization of um, electrodynamics. Um, and so there, there was a moment in the, uh, in the late 1940s where Schwinger calculated the first um, correction, for first per the kind of the first non-trivial order of the perturbation series from quantum electrodynamics, um, and it showed a discrepancy from the kind of standard value for that uh, uh, magnetic moment. Um, and it precisely matched a recently determined experimental violation of um, the classical value. And so that's subsequently become kind of a, a precision test of um, quantum electrodynamics. But um, the, these anomalous magnetic moment calculations are now done for the muon as well. And um, the, these, uh, these sorts of observables are important kind of sources of precision tests for, um, for the theory. Um, and so, yeah, does that, does that help to Right, clarify? yeah, yeah, it does. Um, yeah, so, so people started uh, thinking about this and um, kind of like carrying this all the way uh, through and did many orders of perturbation theory. It's taken ex like incredible experimental in ingenuity to be able to um, measure the um, the value of this um, quantity to the level of precision that they're able to. It's something like 12 decimal places of precision or something like that. Uh, I believe is something like the current best measurement. Um, and I'm, I apologize, I can't actually describe the actual measurement. I'm not. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult measurement to, um, to execute. This episode is sponsored by Brilliant. Listen, up to this point, we've been talking about summing infinite series, diverging integrals and all of these mathematical tools that are, that are used within quantum field theory. The best place to get a grip on these fundamentals is over at Brilliant. They have these amazing interactive lessons that you can go in and play with the concepts yourself. And personally, I think that is, in fact, the best way to learn. You can even start from the very, very basic concepts and work your way all the way up to the more complicated things, including the topics that we cover here on the Math and Physics podcast. If you want 20% off your first year of the premium membership, you can go to brilliant.org MPP. I will put the link in the description and the code as well, guys. You cannot miss this opportunity. I actually think um, like Feynman describes this measurement in his book on uh, um, Q, QED, quantum electrodynamics. Um, that's yeah. the name of the book. And I, I think he said that the measurement was so precise, it would be like measuring the distance between New York and LA um, to like one millimeter or something like that. <laughs> To the to the width, what Feynman says is, is like the measuring hair, yeah. the width of a human right. hair, yeah, 
And you have to remember that I, uh, that was a, I forget what year QED, Feynman's mm-hmm. QED, pop, that's a popular exposition was published, but that's like several decades back. Um, and so the precision of that measurement has subsequently been uh, pushed even further. Um, and uh, we, yeah, now we're at a point where it's, it's really incredible. The difficult, one of the difficulties in um, pushing it further is, is that it's not fully independent from the measurement of the fine structure constant and you're, uh, that's involved in what you're perturbing in. And so things get um, pretty delicate there. Um, but anyway, to um, kind of circle back to how to try to tell a story about where to, where to say something principled about where the theory can stop giving you good information, um, I think one way, one place to kind of locate that is, uh, comes from thinking about whether there's a physical fact of the matter as you've set up the problem for the theory to be describing. So that's probably kind of abstract sounding, but let me try to um, put a little more um, meat on the bones. So um, the idea is something like this. Um, when I treat um, the quantum, uh, the anomalous electron magnetic moment as a pure QED phenomena, so that was what Schwinger was doing because he had no idea about the other um, field theory contributions that were coming many years later, um, the kind of physical system that you're imagining is the coupling of an electron field to a photon field, and that's it. There's no other. There's no other physical stuff going on inside of the problem. And um, you can ask questions about th- what value quantum electrodynamics, understood as just coupled, uh, just a photon field coupled to an electromagnetic, uh, an electron field. Excuse me. Um, uh, what ha- like you can you can consider the question in the abstract. If the world just consisted of an electron field and a photon field coupled together according to quantum electrodynamics, what would the value of this observable be? And it, it looks really puzzling in, in the first instance when you realize, well, quantum electrodynamics doesn't tell me an answer to that question. At best, it tells me like the, as much precision as I can get by truncating at that minimum val- magnitude value where the perturbative expansion stops giving me good information. Um, but now just think about the fact that um, it turns out that there's, there's no such system of fields in the world. There, those, that's an idealization. The, 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 the idea of an of a, a electron field and a photon field, which are coupled to one another but to nothing else, is just not the kind of physical system that we're interacting with in the world when we do measurements of that observable. Why not? Well, th- we, after Schwinger, we subsequently learned that there's um, the other fields that are coupled to the electron and the photon field. And moreover, it turns out that they make uh, significant contributions to the value of the anomalous electron magnetic moment. They kick in way down the line in the perturbative expansion. They only turn on around the ninth decimal place or so. Um, uh, those are the so-called hedro- the, they're hedronic and weak contributions. Um, uh, to the same observable. But the idea is that um, there's nothing, when you ask of pure quantum electrodynamics, when you ask the question, what's the what's the hundredth val- decimal place value of the anomalous electron magnetic moment, you're no longer asking the theory a question about 
the world anymore. You're asking a question about a hypothetical world that's not the real one. In the real world, um, you want to know the value of the observable uh, that involves not just um, uh, the fields involved in the kind of electrodynamics piece of things, but also uh, once we what happens once we include the full standard model uh, um, collection of fields. And um, if you do that, then it seems like um, uh, you get you can get a story about what happened, um, wh- why it turned out to be the case that uh, the subsequent decimal places of precision don't actually matter for characterizing the physical observable at hand. They get those subsequent terms get swamped by um, uh, by hadronic and weak effects much earlier in the perturbative expansion than where they would matter. And so there's a certain kind of physical justification about where the um, domain of applicability of the theory actually gives out that we can introduce, which gives us not just a mathematical story about where to cut off, but um, uh, a, a story which, according to which, if you ask the theory for more precision, you're just asking it to answer a question that is unphysical. It's not about the system that you're actually trying to talk about anymore. So that's in the case of quantum electrodynamics, I think, how to tell the story. There's a You can generalize this um, and really take the boundaries of applicability of our theories seriously as the source of limitations on precision that we expect from theories. And I think that's one way to try to um, face up to this background conceptual puzzle that goes beyond the mere kind of pragmatic, well, I can only measure to this level of precision and my theory matches that level of precision. So let's just stop there sort of story. Yeah, I found that super interesting how, you know, within this problem, you could tell physicists that, you know, this is something that exists but right now you don't really care about it. So, you know, the, the typical physicist would say, okay, I'll just keep, I'll just keep doing what I do and forget about all of these problems that will exist eventually, you know, uh, assuming that our measurement devices and computers get exponentially better as they have been. Um, but right now it's fine. I will just continue. And it's kind of just the, the people who are thinking about, you know, well, what if we could measure? You know, what are what are kind of the 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 consequences of this separate from yeah, I mean, the that's practical a, aspect? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is a this is an I've I encountered this. This is there's there's no accident that this is where the a lot of the conceptual problems in quantum mechanics and quantum field theory sort of reside, and so the kind of like well. If I can't measure it, then I can just give up because, like, that's that sort of exhausts what um, the theory says, or something like that. That's a that's an old kind of strand of thinking about physical theories, which stemmed from um, really a philosophical movement in how people were thinking about theories in the early 20th century, uh, stemming in large measure from Einstein. So there was a kind of operationalism. Uh, where that meant that the mean the meaning of the terms occurring in the theory was supposed to be cashed out in terms of the actual procedures you were going to do in order to measure the quantity in question, 
um, that sort of operationalism got really hard worn into at least certain strands of how physicists think about physical theories. And there are certain aspects of that that are great uh, as as an as as a way of thinking about physical theories, but there's one there's one pattern of reasoning about theories where I think that that can sometimes kind of produce this sort of artificial boundary where it feels comfortable to just stop asking questions, but it it probably shouldn't. Um, and that that is to say that. Um, Sometimes we say, well, I can't measure it, so the theory, so there's no meaningful question for the theory to kind of answer about it. And I think that's usually a mistake. So it could be that there are certain quantities that we can't measure. Uh, what we can or cannot measure is kind of a contingent matter of fact about the kinds of agents that we are in the particular um, physical circumstances that we find ourselves in, in this particular epoch of the universe and so on. Um, and so to link what there, what we think there could be meaningful questions about directly to those sorts of, um, uh, those sorts of contingent matters of like where we happen to be in the universe and what kinds of agents, what kind of cognitive architecture we have at our disposal and so on, strikes me as a mistake because it just could, it just could turn out to be that there are meaningful questions to ask um, about which you might hope that a physical theory would provide answers, but which um, uh, we don't, for contingent reasons, have the resources to go about measuring. And so, um, yeah, I think that sort of operationalist justification for kind of leaving leaving off kind of stopping our questioning about um what we expect a physical theory to be able to deliver sometimes for makes us stop short of asking the most interesting questions that you might hope that a physical theory would answer and um yeah, that's a that's a style of reasoning that you find all over quantum mechanics and quantum field theory, and I think it's often um, uh, it's often a bit unfortunate that we're kind of stopping right at the precipice of the most interesting questions. Do you think the the level at which we're able to measure things is significant, or is just kind of an excerpt of where we are intellectually in our kind of a, a demonstration of our capabilities in the present moment. Um, yeah, I don't mean to be understood as saying that um, the, the measurement is not important. Quite the contrary. Measurement is, in, in the context of physics at least, that is like the one tool that we have for empirically confronting uh, natural phenomena, which are often at very large kind of remove from the sort of um, empirical access that we normally have to the world. If you think about, you know, just our our kind of uh, resources as human beings for uh, getting around in, in the world, um, that's that's the tool that we have. Um, but just but the what I'm kind of trying to push back against a little bit is the thought that one sometimes encounters, which is um, that because that's the only tool that we have um, for empirically getting at the world, um, that we should somehow think that 
there's nothing more to the world than what we can get at empirically. Um, uh, it, it could just turn out to be the case that, yeah, we're, we're limited beings, we're limited agents. We have this one tool for coming at natural phenomena, which are quite remote from our ordinary experience. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should just, um, we should we should default to thinking that the meaningful questions that there are to ask about the world have the same boundary as wherever our current, um, uh, even principled limitations on our ability to measure things reside. I would assume it's, most questions, like meaningful questions, aren't in this boundary, right? Or at least most questions that are willing to like challenge new physics. Because if it were, then there wouldn't be new questions or really me that meaningful questions. Right. Yeah, and I mean, one way to one way to kind of motivate the intuition I'm pointing towards here is to just think think about the history of science. Think about um, uh, think about what people would have said was in principle measurable uh, two thousand years ago mm -hmm. for the, for the Greeks. What, what how would they have conceived of that in principle measurable boundary? Um, I think we often kind of overestimate our ability to anticipate the direction things are are gonna go in and so um yeah i think is um per like everything we know is perfectly compatible with the um the possibility that where we might currently think of as the in principle limitations on uh, the capacity of humans to measure things and where the operationalists might want to just draw a hard line and say Beyond that, we shouldn't expect that there are meaningful questions to ask. I just think it's pretty likely that if you just think about the historical progress of science, that boundary is going to get revised where where we think um, uh, we can possibly get information about. Um, that's that's We've got a lot of evidence of um, our ability as humans to be able to uh, push that boundary. And so I'm... I'm uh, I'm holding out hope that um, there's going to continue to be meaningful things to say, um, or kind of. I, I think I have I'm not just holding out hope. I think I've got uh, good reasons to think that there's um, uh, there's meaningful stuff beyond that beyond that the way we currently conceive of that boundary, and um, we shouldn't uh, by by kind of by kind of saying well we can't conceive of a way to measure it now there's nothing meaningful to ask i think we kind of cut off um one strand of questioning about how things could be in that space where we can't yet measure um which might point to the sorts of developments which will eventually open the space to be able to measure and then re realize that um uh, realize that there are meaningful questions there. We were talking about experience, uh, um, experiments earlier, and that made me think of Einstein's thought experiments. And I wanted to know your view on these thought experiments. Are they scientifically valid to be able to just think of something and say, you know, this this is meaningful in describing reality? Yeah, I will say that there is a, now a pretty substantial literature in the philosophy of science about thought experiments and the um, the role that they play in scientific kind of reasoning. That is not something that I've thought a ton about um, in in particular. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, I mean, 
Einstein obviously is, has these much celebrated thought experiments, and I think that it's a. I I I guess I haven't, as I said, I haven't thought this right. through this sort of question in detail. But I kind, of, but I kind of think of thought experiments as just sort of hypothetical reason, a brain, a, a species of hypothetical reasoning um, that it's pretty unsurprising as a fruitful way to come at scientific thinking. Um, and yeah, it's not that I guess. I think the 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 more provocative questions that people ask about this, um, which are like, is that a valid, f like people ask questions about like, is that a valid way to um, uh, to reason, or is, is could you establish a scientific fact on the basis of a thought experiment alone, or something like that? Um, I don't know that I. I mean, I guess I'd say no. Like I th I think of the scientific project as first and foremost or constitutively as one of taking our theoretical resources and using them to confront our experience and so absent uh, absent that sort of confrontation with experience by doing real experiments in the real world I, I don't think I'm of the mind that you could really achieve that but um, yeah I think there's there's a fair number of philosophers who have thought through these this particular sort of question in uh, much more detail and would probably have um, more helpful things to say here. All right. Do you think one could disprove, or maybe not disprove, maybe that's the wrong question, but maybe like motivate physicists or scientists to like do their due diligence more if the correct philosophical question is asked? As in, would you maybe know, or is there maybe any, because I mean, we only hear of the theories that are successful. We don't hear of the theories that didn't work. But I'm assuming that philosophers were also asking questions to the theories that didn't work. Again, I could be wrong, but I would think so. So I guess my question is, where does how, what role does that play into said work? Do, does the philosopher motivate the physicist or the scientist? Or how do you look at the relationship between them? I mean, maybe this is a little bit of a jump from your question. You tell me if um, you have something slightly different in mind. But I think, so when I... The, the philosophy of physics grew into a individual, well-established discipline on its own, on the back of the measurement and problem in quantum mechanics, which I was uh, referring to earlier in our discussion. Um, and I think of that as a pretty clear instance uh, where, okay, the, there there were a few physicists, people I have in mind are Bohm, uh, and um, on the one hand, and Hugh Everett on the other, and much later, um, uh, the um, people um, involved in the development of a class of theories called spontaneous uh, collapse theories. Um, but those are relatively uh, of quite quite a small minority of physicists thinking about quantum mechanics, um, and I think. Yeah, this is an if if you want to find example where the the dynamic was precisely like physicists try to say this, philosophers mm. say um no, mm. that's like concept there's conceptual difficulties with that way of thinking about things. Um the me the measurement problem is um uh, about as clear of an example of that as I can think of. And there the there the problem was just that um 
for much of the early, relatively, the first few decades of quantum mechanics, uh, it was perfectly, um, it was regarded as perfectly reasonable, or at least on the table scientifically, to think that there was some kind of special distinguished role for observers in quantum mechanics. Um, and uh, that's something where the philosophers got pretty uncomfortable and pushed back and um, were quite clear that um, that's, that's, that seems like a problematic feature for a physical theory to have. Um, and yeah, I think we're still, we're still, as I indicated earlier, I think we're still trying to have that discussion in many ways. We haven't moved beyond it, but um, we've now at least got on the table a number of quite clear um, alternative ways of thinking about the theory uh, in which there's no special role for observers and um, the way that one thinks about measurement. Uh, in particular, in the theory, um, is much more clear, and the kind of thing about which um, we can tell a story, which is more, more cl clearly independent of the, uh, the, 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 the fact that we're the ones here doing experiments and things like that. Um, uh, and so it's more clearly the kind of thing that you could tell a philosophical story about in the sense that you can imagine uh, you can imagine a world where quantum mechanics was true, but humans never um, evolved, for example. And it se so it, se it seems kind of surprising in that scenario that there should be any special role for um, observers in, in a world where quantum mechanics are the fundamental um, uh, are the fundamental physical rules that um, physical systems are obeying. And so, yeah, I think if if you want an example of that kind of thing where the philosophers directly push back, uh, that's probably it. I'm, But as I said, it wasn't just, it wasn't, the dynamics there weren't just the philosophers said no, the physicists said yeah. Um, uh, there were There were a few physicists who were also very much actively thinking about um, how to tell a realistic story about the uh, project of measurement. I mean, um, uh, uh, Bell, of course, is um, uh, critically important in this connection as well. Are there any like famous examples in the history of physics where philosophers are taking you know one side versus another side, and in the future it was shown that well, one view is definitely more correct than the other? Um, I think, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure one could construct, um, or one could probably come up with a historical example and tell a story like that. Um, I, yeah, I guess I, 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 I don't know that, um, to me at least, the, the chief, that's not how I, I guess I'm, I'm balking a little here just because I, I don't think that's the central role of um, uh, philosophy or philosophical engagement with physical theories. And so I don't, I don't want to make it out to be the case that um, those are the sorts of dynamics that are important or that somehow like distinguishes the success cases for philosophical engagement right. with physical theories. Um, I'm much more interested in, and uh, you know, I wanted to say proud of the instances where um, 
uh, philosophers pointed to uh, these sorts of conceptual tensions that I was gesturing at early on and um, made it clear that a more fulsome story was going to be required. And I think that's that's both kind of more accurate to the way things tend to go as a historical matter, but also, yeah, it's if, if we were going to write down norms for how to go about um, philosophically engaging with theories, I think um, that's that's how I would um, uh, that's how I would think about what it could look like for there to be a productive engagement between um, the fields. What do philosophers see? Uh, this is kind of a, a little bit of an extension, but um, more like. A, a, a very general question in quantum mechanics, not necessarily field theory, which is there are so many interpretations of quantum mechanics, with the most famous one being the Copenhagen, but I'm sure there are others, like I think there's a pilot wave, many worlds, all these different interpretations. And I what my understanding of the interpretations are, again, I haven't taken any advanced quantum mechanics classes, is that all of them more or less have similar empirical results. So I guess the question would be, how does what is a philosopher's take on such a theory where there are multiple theories explaining the same thing more or less correctly? How do you tackle that? Yeah, so I mean, th that's right. So, and there's a few pieces here, but in general, that's a uh, if if we imagine that all of the interpretations um, really gave perfectly identical predictions under any conceivable measurement um, context, um, then you'd have a case of what's called underdetermination. Under so you, no matter what, not just, and in this case, it would be a particularly bad one because it's underdetermination, not just um, by the available, currently available empirical evidence. Um, as you rightly mentioned, at least some of the interpretations are empirically equivalent mm -hmm. under any possible um, right. empirical evidence and so that's a that's like very strong underdetermination um, because it says no matter how good you get at collecting evidence you're not going to be able to break that underdetermination and uh, see which one is correct one point to raise so so you hit a lot of the interpretations that philosophers have been um, interested in so Copenhagen is uh, well for one thing that's turned into that it's not it what the way the original Copenhagen was originally articulated, it wasn't so obvious exactly what the interpretation of the theory was even supposed to be. There's critical ambiguities in the way that at least some presentations of that way of thinking about the theory are standardly presented. And so that is like, in some sense, the most common interpretation, but it also, if you press people on what they mean when they express the Copenhagen interpretation, it's not uncommon to find that you have more than one person advocating in favor of Copenhagen, but they have pretty substantially different versions of um, what the theory is supposed to mean in mind. So that's, there's I, for my money, there's really more than one interpretation there, and uh, you have to kind of get clear on um, what that is even, what that even is as an interpretation of the theory. Um, but then, yeah, as you mentioned, there's the kind of Bohmian way of thinking about quantum mechanics, um, which unlike other approaches to quantum mechanics, does assign determinate positions to any given particle. Um, and the quantum mechanical probabilities um, then turn out to be matters of 
unlike in other ways of thinking about the theory, the probabilities that you get there are subjective probabilities. They're probabilities that stem from them, our ignorance of the kind of initial distribution of particles um, in, in their spatial locations. And so, but you do have a fully deterministic theory that um, uh, will agree with the standard predictions of quantum theory and hence gives rise to a kind of underdetermination problem. Um, but in addition to that, there are these spontaneous localization theories where um, people made an explicit effort to model measurement type collapse interactions at the level of the dynamics of the theory. So um, they built a, you know, the part of the measurement problem is just that we've got one role for how states evolve in quantum mechanics um, under normal circumstances. So it's a normal dynamical rule that just like the, the kind you get in any other physical theory, it tells you if you give me the state at this time, what is the state going to be at any subsequent time? What's different about quantum mechanics is that there's an addendum which says, uh, assuming no measurement interaction happens between those two times. Um, and then what's unusual about quantum mechanics is that we get a separate dynamical rule, uh, which tells us what's supposed to happen at subsequent in, in those uh, times when a measurement is conducted. And there we get, uh, unlike the unitary ev Schrodinger evolution that connects states at distinct times, um, in moments where a measurement is um, uh, occurring on the Copenhagen kind of way of thinking about things, at least, uh, then we get a non-unitary collapse um, of the wave function um, into an eigenstate or something like it of the observable being measured. Uh, and that's an unusual feature of a physical theory. It's not standard that we get two distinct sorts of time evolution rules. Um, and so the um, uh, the Bohmian doesn't need that uh, additional collapse rule in their theory. They have a different way of explaining how you get determinate measurement outcomes without having an explicit collapse, non-unitary um, collapse of the wave function. But the uh, P the develop GRW or the developers of um, Gerardi, Rumini, and Weber were the uh, developers of um, the spontaneous the original version of the spontaneous localization type theory, and they said, well, let's just model that. Um, let's just build a physical theory where the basic dynamical evolution includes a kind of collapse on the ground floor. Let's let's put that in as part of the fundamental dynamical evolution of the systems in, in being described by quantum mechanics. And they did it. Uh, and they did it in a way that um, should uh, recover the predictions of quantum mechanics, at least um, up to a few caveats. Um, one thing is that you you have to feed in a new kind of fundamental physical constant, which is like um, the rate at which um, those uh, co spontaneous collapses happen. Um, and so you need to tune that to be appropriate so that collapse of the right number of particles will happen at the right frequency in order for it to be the case that an individual electron is very unlikely to collapse at any moment in its history passing through a detector. But a large collection of electrons is, um, or a large uh, kind of uh, d device sized um uh, experimental device size collection of uh, quantum mechanical particles is likely to collapse um, in in the during the process of a measurement interaction, and so you get an alternative explanation of 
where you get that collapse type behavior that doesn't require adding a distinct uh, law of dynamical evolution. Um, and then the last, I mean, I, me I mentioned that first, uh, well, uh, just because that's an example of another realist kind of construal of the theory. Finally, there's the kind of Everettian or many worlds um, interpretation of the theory where there, again, you just stick to the standard unitary dynamics of ordinary old quantum mechanics that you're familiar with. Um, but you tell a different story about what it means or where it where it comes where where the appearance of de 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 distinct determinate measure me measurement records comes from, uh, and in particular, they, it comes from the kind of decoherence of um, uh, different branches of the wave function, and those are what eventually come to be called the distinct, uh, the, the many worlds of uh, Everettian quantum mechanics. Um, so there again, you don't need any kind of collapse. There's a different mechanism by which you come to have the appearance of determinate measurement records on, um, uh, on as the outcomes of quantum mechanical experiments. Um, all of those, uh, except the the spontaneous localization theories are, are going to exhibit the kind of underdetermination you were gesturing at, um, or it seems I, uh, there's, these are, these are the subjects of substantial debates in philosophy of physics. So I don't want to put it totally unequivocally, but, um, yeah, there, those are, those are good candidates for, um, the kind of underdetermination you're gesturing towards. There's some prospect that, um, uh, the spontaneous localization type theories could actually lead to effects which would be measurable and uh, measurable um, uh, in a way that would distinguish them from the others. Um, okay, so that's just to kind of fill out the space of interpretations a bit, but then um, to kind of circle back to your original question, which is just like, well, what do you do if you have, um, let's just imagine all those theories turned out to be uh, fully empirically underdetermined in the sense we were um, uh, kind of considering, what do you, what do you say? Like, what, how could you possibly determine which one was true if any possible empirical evidence could uh there's no possible empirical evidence that could ever decide between them. Uh, and what philosophers say is, look, um, yeah, it might be the case that um, they're all empirically equivalent. And this kind of comes back to our discussion of operationalism just a minute ago. Um, but so, so if you just think that what's meaningful is what the theory is going to say about empirical um uh, the results of empirical investigations of the world, then it, on our, our uh, assumption that these really are all empirically equivalent and we have full underdetermination, then those are all equally good stories about the world and there's nothing to really differentiate. Like, um, they're, they're all, they all have as much claim to truth if, as any of the others. But that seems, that seems like a bad result in the sense that um, the stories that we're telling about what's going on in the world in each of those cases are radically different. I mean, the kinds of worlds that are described by Everetti and quantum mechanics uh, are just wildly different from the kinds of worlds that are described by, say, Bohmian mechanics or uh, uh, GRW-type theories um, or uh, Copenhagen on any of its uh, persistifications. And so... Um, <laughs> That's the kind of situation where the philosophers want to say, look, it might be that empirical evidence can't decide which of these is true, but minimally, 
you, you, it seems like you're going to want to say that there's important physical differences about what sort of situation is being described in these cases. Um, and then some philosophers want to give arguments that try to tell in favor of one or another of those um, theories being the right way to think about what the real, true physical storyline behind the success of uh, the the empirical success of the algorithm is supposed to be. Um, but on the hypothesis that they're really fully empirically underdetermined, the kinds of reasons that you're going to have to offer in, in, in favor of a theory like Bohm, for example, as opposed to a theory like Everett or GRW or Copenhagen are going to have to be um, they're going to have to be reasons that extend beyond that the theory is, gets the world right empirically, because uh, by hypothesis, they all do. And so the sorts of reasons that people wheel in are theoretical virtues, so kinds of characteristics that a theory can embody that go beyond just its capacity to get the empirical nature of the phenomena right, um, and instead... Um, uh, appeal to things like, um, uh, I mean, standard theoretical virtues are things like simplicity and uh, coherence and, and things like that. But um, the kinds of theoretical virtues that people debate in the context of quantum mechanics are more closely um, tied to the structure of the um, distinct interpretations. So um, yeah, you try, to, you try to say, well, no, the epistemic probabilities in Bohm look more or less natural than the kinds of things I have to do to get a meaningful sense of probability out of uh, a theory like Everettian quantum mechanics, for example. Um, those are the nature of the debates that, that have gone on in the philosophy of literature, philosophy of physics literature, comparing distinct interpretations of quantum mechanics. Do these interpretations still hold up within the framework of quantum field theory, or are they kind of they only work in regular non-relativistic quantum mechanics? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, so the short answer is no. Um, uh, the, these discussions um, have really largely been conducted in the context of non-relativistic quantum mechanics. Um, and uh, in large measure, that's because some of the things that you need to do to solve the measurement problem in any one of these theories really seem to um, depend on introducing a preferred notion of um, simultaneity, which is obviously not a, a relativistically um, invariant sort of notion. And so, um, uh, so some of the kinds of resources that people wheel in in order to solve the measurement problem in the context of non-relativistic quantum mechanics seem to work against the generalization to a relativistically invariant theory. That's certainly the case with Bohm and um, GRW, though um, there are um, uh, there are people working on approaches to uh, generalizing those theories to relativistic um, uh, uh, space-times. Um, Everett, uh, the many worlds kind of interpretation, seems to be the best if if one's if one's primarily concerned with generalizing to a relativistic 
scenario, then Everett seems to have the least problems on um, on this front um, because of the the local nature of um, the evolution that's happening. Um, but there's other there's other there's other challenges for Everett that I find. Um, uh, compelling, um, in in particular, the the way that um, probabilities um, are explained in the theory. I mean, in short, the problem is just that if you're in a situation where the fundamental dynamics are just deterministic, um, uh, as they are um, in in Everett, and you live on a particular branch of the, you know, the, and any observer is going to live on a particular branch of the uh, that decoheres out of the, this universal mm-hmm. wave function, um, it seems like uh, it's a little. It's quite unclear why it looks to observers on an individual branch when they do experiments on that branch. Why it looks to them like there are these random. Uh, why there where, why there are probabilities associated with their measurements? You know, if you go down the street and uh, go do um, a set of uh, quantum mechanical experiments, you'll find that it, that um, the results of them look um, uh, to involve an element of chanciness. And uh, what's puzzling on effort is to explain where that um, where that comes from, uh, because at the fundamental level you haven't fed in anything any any chancy ingredient so the other theories kind of do better on that score they they um they wear their probabilistic structure on their sleeve on everett you've got to tell a story about how to recover that so while it is most uh most readily uh, generalizable to relativistic space times because it doesn't introduce anything that kind of uh, 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 cuts against generalization to such a space time uh, at the same time, it also has its it has its own problem, which is is quite uh, conceptually difficult to uh, to wrangle with. And so, yeah, that's kind of where I stand. None, all of the, um, the I mean, these are I I'm very sympathetic to the efforts in the direction of trying to develop realistic interpretations of quantum mechanics because um, without them, we don't we don't have any sort of story to tell about what the theory is about. Um, but of the realistic interpretations that I've mentioned, at least that we've got, none of them seems to yet give us um, something that satisfies all of the theoretical desiderata or conceptual desiderata that what one might have for um, one's account of um, uh, what microphysical reality looks like once one generalizes to um, uh, relativistic space-time. So I think we have we have covered quantum field theory and quantum mechanics quite um, in depth here. And I feel like I now understand a lot more about what a philosopher does to tackle a problem with a theory. Cause I guess that's, that's the main branch of philosophy of science, but I guess I can ask, what do you do when the problem is not a theory? Maybe this is like a nice transition into the fact that you also teach of, and this is actually how I contacted you because a friend of mine took your philosophy of time class. And my question is, how do you tackle the philosophy of something that's, well, at least to my knowledge, not a theory, such as time? I know there have been very many past philosophers such as Zeno. I learned um, his philosophies in one of my classes who had very, very radical views on the nature of time. And I know one of the very famous pre-Socratic questions 
of the of the world is what is the nature what is the true nature of space and time so i guess yeah i mean well how do you tackle the question of time and what do you think of time yeah <laughs> just just curious about a philosopher's take on it yeah um yeah time is something that um in addition to my interest in quantum mechanics um time is one of the things that i've always just found um interesting as a avenue for philosophical kind of uh, questioning outside the scope of any particular physical theory now i mean any most theories of physics or many theories of physics i should say have an account of time within them or at least um time makes some sort of appearance in the way that we present the theory and so one way to come at the question of a philosophical approach to time is to take take your preferred physical theory and try to read off of the formalism of the theory what it's trying to tell you about what the structure of time uh being like but that's not the only way to come at a philosophical question about a physical concept um and as you noted time is one is a great candidate for um for for taking a, perhaps a different approach um and so the and and the reason for that i take it is just unlike some of these features of quantum mechanics we've been discussing where you really have to be working in the framework of the theory for the questions to even come up for you before anybody learned any philosophy or before anybody learned any physics um time confronts us in our very ordinary experience of the worlds um and it really is a f- fundamental organizing feature of our human experience of um of being in the world and so um that's i think why questions about the philosophy of time uh, many people find um uh deeply deeply fascinating and um compelling even outside the context of any particular physical theory now um i i think that we've uh our success with um si- some scientific theories has obviously fundamentally changed what kind of thing that we think time is and so in that philosophy of time course one of the things i try to do is i try to kind of give a back and forth between on the one hand the characteristics of our experience of time um time has a direction time uh kind of partitions events into those that are past those that are present and those that are future uh time proceeds at a uniform rate whatever whatever kind of phenomenological um uh aspects you want of of time you want to uh, characterize and you but then you have to confront those with how the image of time that stems from our best physical theories so even already in special relativity we get pretty radical revisions to various aspects of um our kind of phenomenal experience of time and so part of that course is just a kind of back and forth between how we think about uh our experience of time on the one hand and then the way time is presented in our theories on the other and i guess what i'd say is any kind of physical account of time um that comes from our best physical theories eventually uh is the sort of thing that one wants to have some story about how to build back to what our experience of time 
in the world is actually like? And so um, that's another sort of question. That's a that's a different sort of question than the one I've been describing in the context of, you know, finding the conceptual problems, in nitty gritty problems inside of uh, a particular physical theory. But uh, but uh, it's another sort of question, how to recover our, you know, our experience of these physical concepts out of the abstract theoretical representations of them, which sometimes reveal our basic physical concepts, uh, uh, basic physical structures, structural aspects of the world to be pretty radically different from the way they present themselves in our experience. And so that's another kind of philosophical problem is how do you reconcile those things? How do you, how do you tell a story about how it could be that fundamentally the world is structured um, uh, in a way that's presented in our best scientific theories, but then um, we have this kind of ra radically distinct uh, uh, perception of of what seem to be related uh, categories, um, and that's a, that, that's another sort of question that I find um, very interesting and uh, really important um, for uh, thinking about. Yeah, what what role um, these more abstract theoretical and conceptual considerations internal to our theories might have in accounting for uh, more basic aspects of the human experience in the world. Uh, so just wondering, since humans usually kind of operate on a day-to-day -day at non-relativistic speeds, wouldn't kind of the description of time coming from a special relativity view be consistent with just an everyday experience, uh, human experience, experience of time. Yeah. So, I mean, so you've likely never had the experience that you were walking in the opposite direction, um, as someone down the street and, uh, got into a disagreement with them about what order various events happened in your immediate uh, physical proximity. And as you say, the explanation of that fact is you're, uh, even though you do occupy distinct inertial um, frames of reference, uh, the, the, the relative difference in velocity is sufficiently low that special relativistic effects don't play any you know they don't they don't present themselves in your experience in a way that you have to to worry about um that's certainly true but at the same time um at least initially it seems like special relativity is going to say things um uh which do contradict our um uh kind of ordinary experience um and here i have in mind kind of the argument for eternalism or the argument for a kind of four-dimensional block view of the universe um, stemming from special relativity, which says that, yeah, fundamentally um, anything, that, you know, in special relativity, take a four-dimensional manifold of events, um, uh, you're existing here now having this conversation with me is just one, um, uh, one event in that manifold. Um, but there's an argument that you can give, um, uh, partly due to a philosopher, Hilary Putnam, uh, which says that if you think that the relationship of being real now is transitive, um, then you can pretty quickly get from uh, the fact that you having this uh, conversation here with me is real now, 
um, to uh, some other event is real now and some other event is real now and some other event is real now, where the trick that you're playing is there exists some distinct inertial observer who treats um, those two, each of those events as simultaneous. Um, and before you know it, you cover the whole, you cover the whole manifold. And so if being real now is really transitive in that way, um, then you pretty quickly get to the conclusion that um, this appearance that is very firmly rooted in our experience, that uh, there's a hard, a hard distinction to draw between those events that are present, those events that are past, and those events that are future, um, is got to somehow be illusory. And so that's the sort of thing that um, I think does require um, uh, a, a sort of story in the background about, well, what, what, what could be going on there? What, how could it be that if, if, if we take the Putnam-type arguments to be conclusive and we say, in fact, uh, all events really are real now in the, in the sense that's established by that argument, um, how come it really looks and feels to us like there's a pretty substantial difference to draw between those events that are past, those that are present, and those that are future? Um, and yeah, I think I, there's loads of other, I mean, that's just one example of this sort of thing. The, I think the real challenging, um, conceptually challenging aspects of um, what time is like in our physical theories and what time appears to us to be like stem from questions coming out of thermodynamics and the direction of time and era of increase of entropy and things like that. So um, again, time is just really full of these sorts of, uh, it's one of these physical concepts, which is a basic aspect of our experience. But then once you try to look under the hood and see what sort of scientific account do we actually have of this concept, um, the story is not at all straightforward. It's not at all clear how the versions of the concept that present themselves in distinct physical theories are connected up to one another. And I'll say I wouldn't be at all surprised if um, subsequent physical developments, you know, the, the kind of thing that really move us forward to new paradigms to stem from radical revisions to our concept of time. I think this brings up um, quite a big question for me because I've had this discussion with a lot of my friends and which is the tensed versus the tenseless theory of time. And as you mentioned, special relativity with the block universe subjects to the tenseless theory of time, for which I am also, so I, I, I was always under the tensed belief until I took this class and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I'm actually quite interested in the tenseless belief. And I started telling a lot of my friends, a lot of physicists, I believe Parker and I also spoke about it. And I know a lot of people that disagreed with me, a lot of people that agreed with me. So I guess as a question, maybe you could start off because, I mean, I could give it my best shot, but I think you would do a much better job. Maybe you could start off by just describing the tensed and tenseless theory of time as brief as possible. And then like your views on what, I don't even know if this is a valid question. Like, do you believe, which one do you believe in and, or maybe weigh them? Yeah. So, I mean, the, dis the distinction between tensed and tenseless um, theories of time, I think goes back to the if I'm not mistaken, goes back to Bank Taggart, a philosopher. Um, he gave an argument that said um, time is unreal. Um, and um, I mean, so, but the, in, perhaps in more modern terms, the, the basic idea is just um, the, there's a question what, in terms of whether or not you think 
so if you believe the kind of eternalist picture that I was just describing, where um, any event in the four-dimensional space-time manifold is real now, and so all there ever is is everything, always, uh, then tensed distinctions in our language, so things like it was the case that this, but and it's going to be the case that, you know, things that ascribe um, uh, uh, kind of a temporal order to events just aren't tracking something that's actually there in the uh, physical substrate um, that you're trying to attach it to. And so I guess in terms of what I think about this, I guess, yeah, I think the there's a straightforward argument from special relativity um, that um, that gets you to the conclusion that you you just have to have a tenseless theory of time. Um, now, that that I think is pretty straightforward from the um, from st like the way things are standardly set up in these discussions. I think that's that's pretty straightforward. I guess the place where I want to um, uh, dig in and say, okay, but there might be some room for some nuance here is um, to do with what we mean by here. So um, uh, you have to, I mean, discussions about um, special relativity often are based around you take an inertial frame and then you carve up um, hypersurfaces of simultaneity or classes of events that are all happening at the same time um, uh, at, uh, uh, and then you cover the whole space-time manifold with those hypersurfaces uh, according to the perspective of somebody who's moving in a particular inertial um, uh, state of motion. Um, and of course, distinct inertial uh, observers are going to carve up the manifold of space-time events into into um, uh, what's happening now distinctly, and that's basically what's underlying this result that um, you can find somebody for whom everything is here now, and hence um, or everything's ha is real now, and so um, you get the result that everything is real now. Um, but I guess. <laughs> I think p part of what makes this confusing and part of what, I mean, there, uh, if you just consult your experience, it seems obvious that that can't be right because things like, um, uh, there's obviously things that are in my past that aren't real now. I did stuff earlier that just aren't, yeah, like that's gone. And so there's, that's where this puzzle comes from is it seems like I need tense talk to be able to refer back to those events and to account for the fact that there is that temporal distance between me here having this conversation with you now and those items that are past and those items that are um, future in the history of the universe. Um, and I think, so So the reason that here matters is because I think a lot of this um, tension comes from uh, the move that we make where we take the hypersurfaces of simultaneity and we extend them globally, meaning uh, we take we ex in three dimensions out of the four across the universe, depending on our inertial frame of motion. Three three of those dimensions we take here to be fixed, um, but we that you know involves a pretty conceptually radical move, which is you're fixing everything that's happening 
um, not just, you know, here in my office or there, um, uh, where, where you guys happen to be, um, but you're fixing everything everywhere spatially in the universe all for that instant. Um, and I think part of the, the confusion comes from that generalization across all of space. Um, uh, because you're fixing stuff um, that you don't really have access to. And I mean, if you take um, our current best understanding of the large scale structure of the universe, like you're taking, you're freezing in stuff that you don't have, like couldn't possibly have propagated a causal signal to you yet in the, in the whole history of the universe. Um, and so I think uh, the, a path out of this is to consider a more uh, local version of what you take to be here now, to be stuff that's more, um, or to be real now. Uh, and um, if you take that sort of path, there's a way to, um, uh, there's a way to freeze out or to, to prevent this kind of cascading effect where you get the result that everything is real now. And so you can recover something more like um, the, the a tense appearance, um, even if fundamentally there is um, a tenseless uh, uh, of underlying substrate. And so I'm, I'm sympathetic to views which try to build a more realistic um, account of um, what we mean when we say that, you know, uh, this is the way I'm carving up my um, the, the the hypersurfaces of simultaneity and what things we actually take ourselves to be giving ourselves access to when we perform that sort of construction. I feel like my major um, argument towards a lot of this is, well, as I mentioned, I, um, I do subscribe to the tenseless theory because I do find it quite fascinating. And the way that I was I was taught to think about it was, like a, at least a tense versus a tenseless is that tenseless is all relative speaking and everything is basically already quote unquote written out and in the same and while tense theory the future is undeterminate it can really be anything tenseless is not the same way where everything is already determined now there was like a whole chapter in my course which is fate versus determinism where they're not the same thing so a lot of people usually confuse this the, the fact that the tenseless theory of time is determinate with the fact that oh fate is uh fate is the is is also quote unquote real however they do have very different aspects which i'm sure you are aware of and the big thing that i like to you know tell people when i believe in the tensile theory of time is the thing with the thing with buildings i actually really like this analogy where it's like oh if i'm stand i mean this is a very general analogy it's if i'm standing on one building and i want to move to the next i can simply walk to the other one and if i want to go to the previous building i can just walk to the other side of it and thinking about time in the same way you soon start to realize that if time was let out in this in this quote-unquote one-dimensional, you know, uh, length, then you could also traverse time in both the past and the future. Now, if you believe that at some, like, for example, at some X, Y, Z, comma, T, some event happened in the past, that means you also believe via special relativity that at some X, Y, Z, comma, T in the future, the event that will occur is written out, or that event is 
an event that will take place. It's just that we are not aware of it because everything is all relative. And again, I haven't really thought of what I'm really going to say very well, but I think in the briefest way that I'm trying to say it is that relativity, hence the name, I guess, holds a much more valuable sense of time, at least in my opinion, towards thinking about, oh, what will happen in the future? And it's just, oh, well, two days ago, I did this. Four days ago, I didn't know I was going to do it. But now I know I did it. So it's the same thing in the future, but just it just doesn't make sense to us because we're not used to thinking about it that way. But that's the common way that I think about the tenseless theory of time. And I feel like very many people have very contradicting, or not contradicting, uh, contra- uh, um, varying opinions on this theory. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that we kind of got your two cents with a little bit of this and a little bit of that, how it's tenseless, but you can think about it as tensed. I really appreciate that, that mode of thinking. And I think it's quite, uh, quite yeah. a positive one. Yeah, I mean, there's a tenseless substrate, and that much seems clear in the, at least at the level of special relativity. In general relativity, things become more complicated again, and eventually we expect even that kind of picture of space-time structure to... Um, give way to some something new when we get a theory of quantum gravity um, and you know in a lot of the kinds of theories of quantum gravity that people um, that people are seriously entertaining these days time and even this idea that there is this background space-time manifold in which um, physical events unfold is something that gets radically undermined. You know, people work in scenarios where the very space-time manifold in which we view physical events as unfolding is only a kind of emergent thing off of some more basic substrate that has features that are even more wildly divergent from the way that spatial and temporal kind of um, appearances show up for us in, in our experiences of the world. Yeah. That's very, very interesting stuff. I wanted to ask you, I think as the last question is for the undergrad students or maybe the late high school students out there who are interested in getting into philosophy, what are kind of the the best like introductory books that you could read or maybe some online resources that they can access? Um, you know, I think... <laughs> I grew up on like a slightly different um, set of books, like th- that were great books that I read during that kind of period of my studies, and which partly motivated me to, um, partly motivated me to pursue some of these questions. Um, but I feel like I'm maybe a little bit out of touch at this stage. I think um, there's like been a whole new, um, there's a whole new set of books um, that have grown up. Uh, that have come up in in recent years and i probably so let's just to say i'm probably not the best person anymore to recommend um literature but i guess one thing i'd recommend is there if you're curious about the kind of historical uh progression of quantum mechanics and the interplay that's something that we talked about a fair bit about um uh, the interplay between the um the philosophers and the physicists and some of these physicists who went against the mainstream of physics and really tried to work out realistic accounts of quantum mechanics. There's a wonderful book by uh, Adam Becker called What is Real? And it um, uh, gives a nice um, introduction to not just some of the quantum mechanics itself, but also to these kind of historical um, kind of progressions and how uh, that 
kind of uh, under that that kind of lie in the background of how philosophy of physics came to be um, its own separate thing from just straight up uh, physics approaches to quantum mechanics. So uh, that's one thing I'd I'd recommend to um, people. It's quite readable and uh, really um, wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, maybe I'll stick with that. I I, I feel like I'm not. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm probably not the most well-equipped to uh, provide up-to-date recommendations, but um, I'm, I'm sure as soon as we get off the call, I'll, I'll think of something better, but um, at the moment, nothing else comes to mind. Any uh, last advice? Oh, I think you were going to ask the same question, <laughs> but uh, any any advice that you would maybe give to a future philosopher or someone who might be interested in physics similar to you, but is, is now is now learning that, hey, maybe even I actually like wondering about these foundations more than the physics itself. Any advice you would have for some some people like that? Just, um, yeah, follow your interests. Like, I, I think it's, um, uh, there's, there's lots of forces in play in terms of the way academia is structured, which are there to kind of force you to winnow down your interests into like one specific kind of thing that you're going to, um, that you're going to eventually do. And eventually those, those forces are going to kick in and you're going to have to, um, you're going to have to specialize and um, think about a specific set of questions. But uh, I guess the advice, if anything, is to just uh don't 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 start that process too early um it's it's really um uh it's a good idea to explore and to get a broad sense of all of the kind of areas of inquiry that are relevant to the sorts of questions that you find interesting and often on a first inspection or even a second inspection it's it's not possible to determine if um, a particular kind of branch of inquiry is going to be uh, the kind of thing that ultimately you're going to find um, uh, you're going to find most fascinating, and so read widely. Um, don't feel like there. Don't. I think I often encounter students who feel like there's some specific track and I think that's built into the way that the educational system is built that you get this idea that first you learn this and then you learn this and then this comes next and then you can finally approach this and um I, I mean there's a certain respect in which that's true there's things that depend on other things but not all paths to the thing that you're going to find most interesting are going to be linear paths um uh, sometimes um you you'll find that uh the most fascinating thing is something that comes out of left field and um you only happened upon by accident because you saw you read you read something that you weren't you wouldn't have otherwise read or you talked to somebody you otherwise wouldn't have talked to and so don't be afraid to just explore and follow your nose and um uh, yeah i guess the last thing to say is um uh, yeah, it's just an enormous privilege to be able to live your life and have, you know, your work be to think about um, these sorts of questions that really, um, it's a, the kind of thing that really can give value to give one a sense of value in one's life. And um, yeah, however you can find that, um, that, that, that's what you should be after more than, more than anything else. All right. Well, 
I want to thank you, Mike, for taking the time today to come on the podcast. It was a pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, guys. Yeah, I feel like we've uh, we've all answered our age-old question about what do philosophers do? Because I feel like I was always, because <laughs> as I mentioned before, in the beginning of the podcast, we have a lot of philosophy episodes, but are always curious to find out like what, because what, nowadays all the philosophers have turned into scientists. So what does a philosopher do? But it's so heartwarming to know that philosophy, especially in, in your field, philosophy of science, is still a very much a booming uh, part of science because it's something that all scientists have to think about. And I'm so glad that at least at U of T, we have a requirement of a history and philosophy of science course before we graduate as a scientist. So I really appreciate that. And now I think we're all a little more well-versed on... Um, what does a philosopher do? So thank you for that. Thank you for your time. Of course. All right. And so for all of the listeners out there, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate us five stars on Spotify and follow us wherever you're listening. Um, yeah, this has been episode number 115 of the Math and Physics podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we'll see you soon. Bye, guys.